0: Brother Howden so graciously noted that we've known each other for a long time, but I'm afraid it's almost 30 years, Paul. Well, <laughs> uh, graciously did not mention the length of days. So. <laughs> um, I do have an apology uh, for the bulletin notes, Trinity Sunday, um, and we managed to leave home without printing the anthem, so we're going to sing a different anthem for you today. It will be... Um, Lord, for thy tender mercy's sake, a 16th century anthem. Um, The beginning of the Psalter is worth noting, I think. Every month in many Anglican cathedrals and probably some congregations, the first psalm for the day begins with, Blessed is the man that hath not walked in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stood in the way of sinners. <coughs> excuse me, and hath not sat in the seat of the scornful. The New King James translation is very similar. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. There are three particular postures considered in this beginning of the psalm. Beginning of the Psalms, actually. Walking, standing, and sitting. This is the life of the active person. This is not sleep. This is not lying down. It's not mentioned. But this is the waking, living part of life that is being considered in our psalm this morning. Warnings about ungodly, evil counsel abound from all parts of the Holy Scripture, especially the wisdom literature. Sin is, of course, cautioned against everywhere. But note how scoffing receives that ultimate listing in our psalm. It is interesting that the beginning of each month of reading the psalms, or the beginning of the Psalter itself, if you will, starts us with a review and consideration of wisdom themes. Of course, thus far in the psalm, the emphasis is entirely negative. What not to do? What does the righteous do? Well, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. This is what the Psalms then are setting us up for. For the month, if that's the reading schedule one is on, and as I said, there are cathedrals in England where I've gone in for evensong. I'm like, oh, well, they're doing three, four Psalms. They're doing the monthly reading. It's still even happening in England. We think, wow, England's way out there. And it is, but there are still some cathedrals that read, chant through all the psalms in a month. So this is what the psalms are setting us up for for the month or uh, perhaps at the very least for the Psalter readings of each day as we go through the psalms. The first psalm tells us to delight in our meditations and our contemplations even. Our prayer life is to lead towards a speculative and effective synthesis, a peaceful delight in contemplating the law of God and that which the law pushed and still pushes us towards, the grace of God in Christ Jesus. This is the central theme in the life of of all the saints, and that's you and me, is to be the central theme in our life. And it's a wonderful theme for contemplating the life of our great saints, such as today with St. Barnabas. What is the result of this type of prayerful life? A peaceful delight in contemplating the law of God and the grace of God in Christ Jesus. Verse 3 tells us, "...he shall be like a tree." Planted by the rivers of waters, that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. (laughs) As we remember this Apostle, St. Barnabas, today, a man who prospered the kingdom of God in his life and in his martyrdom, we should ask ourselves Am I ready to bring forth fruit in due season? Now, that doesn't necessarily mean martyrdom. I keep telling God I'm not, very, I'm not going to be good at that. Probably this is not a good test for me. Um, but are we ready to bring forth fruit in our lives? The Celts had two different types of martyrs they talked about. They talked about the red martyr spilling blood, but they also talked about the white martyr. He who gave his entire life, though, was not martyred in the traditional sense to God in service. And there are so many examples of that. Uh, On those days, we have white on the altar for the purity they had in Christ and for a life well lived. Not spotless, not sinless, but a life well lived to the glory of God and for the furtherance of the kingdom. So bearing fruit in due season, we should remember that due season takes some time. It is not instant fruiting in any trees that I've ever planted. Well, in fact, my fruit trees have never borne fruit, and I've killed so many of them, I've stopped planting them. I'd better not go into the farming orchard field, we, my family would starve. We are living in a vicarage now by God's grace, amazing grace, and amazing blessing of a place that is two blocks from the church, which is another blessing. And we moved in with seven apple trees and five plum trees. And I said, oh, we'll see if I can kill these. (laughs) They're over 100 years old, so lots of fruit the first year. Then we pruned them back because they hadn't been touched in 30 years. And I might have killed most of them. Um, Patience and consistency is the name of the game. So I'm practicing patience with my apple trees, hoping that the hard pruning that was needed is not going to produce is going to eventually produce solid fruiting we did get some fruit last year which was the first year after the pruning we're hoping and praying for lots of fruit this year one tree bloomed out wonderfully the largest maybe the oldest tree it's not looking so healthy but patience and consistency i'm going to give it some time It's the name of the game. Steady practice and delight in the counsel of God in his word is the path to helping the tree of our soul drink deeply of the water of life and bring forth fruit. Says one scholar, the life of Christian prayer and meditation knows nothing of instant holiness. It is all a matter of perseverance and patience. Of course, the Psalms are best read in the light of the incarnation, so who is this blessed man spoken of? But Christ Jesus Himself, who delighted in the law and fulfilled in ways fulfilled the laws in ways that we can never duplicate. And this brings me to a passing reference to our gospel lesson, but I want to go to our epistle appointed for Trinity, Trinity one that would normally be today to flesh out a little bit more from the first letter of St. John rather than the Gospel. Beloved, let us love one another. But the Gospel is about love too. The the Epistle, the point of fraternity, Trinity One, though, gives us a little bit more meat. Beloved, let us love one another for love is of God and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. A peaceful delight in contemplating the law of God And the grace of God in Christ Jesus, if we are honest with ourselves and with God, must, must bring us to love. For God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us from again, from St. John's first letter. That God has sent his only begotten Son into the world. That we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. St. Bede, that great historian of our church in the ninth century and a great scholar of the Holy Scriptures, says that we know that Jesus is the Son of God and that the Father has sent him to be the Savior of the world. And we believe in the love which God has for us, the same love which he has for his only begotten Son, because God did, did not want his Son to be an only child. He wanted him to have brothers and sisters, and so he adopted us in order that we might share his eternal life. As brothers and sisters of Jesus in the family, we have a standard to be kept. St. John, at the end of our epistle, notes that this love of which we speak is a command of Christ's that we heard in our gospel. And this command is at the heart of our active life in God. We must love one another. I'm a teacher of literature, And every four years or so in our high school academy for 25 years this next fall, I teach Dostoevsky's Brothers Karamazov. If you haven't read it, I commend it to you as the greatest novel in the history of the world. And it is an amazing text. He starts... Uh, with an introduction. The author has an introduction. He says, so this is the first of three books. I'll just tell you right now, he died before the last two were written. He says, you might find it odd that my main character, Alyosha, is my hero. Because he doesn't seem to be much of a hero in this text. But Alyosha is my hero. And so as you read the text, I tell my students, many of you have been my students, remember this, that um, the scholars of today, the literary scholars of today will say, well, Dostoevsky paints such a picture in the Grand Inquisitor chapter where one of the brothers of Alyosha says, how can God be real? How can this be true when there's so much suffering in the world? And he, he paints uh, a horrible picture of the world. And Ivan, the brother, says, obviously God is not love. God is not true because no God would allow this suffering to take place if the God was a good God. <clears throat> and the literary scholars of today say this argument from this chapter is unanswerable. Dostoevsky never answers that chapter. He wrote such a con- condemnation of the Christian faith and of God that none of his latter chapters in the book can answer the question, can answer or come back with, no, God really is love. No, the, God, the Christian faith is true and good and beautiful. And I asked my students, I said, well, think about that as you read this. And we read the Grand Inquisitor chapter, and it's heavy, and it's dark. And at the end, I'll ask them, so what is the answer that Dostoevsky gives us? And the answer is the incarnation. Because you see all throughout this text, this Alyosha character who is not strong, he's not Hercules, he doesn't conquer. In fact, he gets beat up by a bunch of little eight to ten-year-old boys at one point. But he loves consistently, all the time. And the elder... Monk in the story tells the story of his brother who is dying when he was a child and his brother invites the servants in and apologizes to the servants of the household and he apologizes to all the lower than him people and and his family is aghast and the brother tells um, the elder monk when he's just a child he says we have to have active love Active love is the term that Dostoevsky uses in Brothers K to illustrate what agape in the Greek means. You know, I love my wife, but in English I also say I love pepperoni pizza. There's a problem there, right? So we have to be able to distinguish the kinds of loves we're talking about. And the love of Christ that we're talking about in St. John, both his gospel and in his epistle that I'm using, is self-sacrificial love. My pastor, as a child, he really got this. He says, look at your wife, look at your sibling, look at your parents, look at your friend. The last time you self-sacrificed for yourself is the last time you loved that person. So he's trying to emphasize the love we're talking about in the scriptures Is not, I love pepperoni pizza. I love ice cream. Oh boy, do I love ice cream. In fact, you know, my wife of 27 years, we just passed on this trip. What a great anniversary. We, two teachers, got married on June 1st. What were we thinking? We've never celebrated our anniversary on our anniversary date ever. We're always in school, we're always at commencement, and this time we're on a trip. I love my wife so much that when I get ice cream for us and I'm carrying it up to our bedroom, I'm weighing the ice cream and thinking, which one's heavier? And it's not to give the heavier one to her. I still find myself, oh, you little selfish, and snot-nosed. Um, but it's self-sacrifice. It's self-sacrifice. It's, it's giving to others. And this is a very easy litmus test for all of us. If we do not love in that manner, then the love of Christ must not be in us. From St. John, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? After all, we love him because he first loved us. That's the only way this love thing works. We don't have it in and of ourselves. Witness even being a Christian all my life and being married for many years, I'm still weighing the ice cream going up the stairs. Please note St. John at verse 18 there is no love, excuse me, there is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. Back to, well, hold on. What are we afraid of? First of all, the world, the devil, ourselves. Those are the things we're called to fight for in our baptism, right? Fight against in our baptism. So here's my question for you. Which of those three things has Christ not conquered on the cross? The kingdom of God The kingdom of Christ needs soldiers and servants who love God and love their neighbor. This is not the work of just the saints, the big name, St. Barnabas and company of the church. This is the work of the whole church. That's you and that's me. This is our work. St. Bede again says, John tells us how we can know where we stand in God's eyes everyone who has assurance on the day of judgment has perfect love in him what does it mean to have assurance it means that we are not afraid of the coming of the judgment when someone is newly converted he starts by being afraid of the day of judgment because he thinks that when the righteous judge appears he will be condemned as unrighteous But as he grows in the faith and his life starts to change, he learns not to be afraid anymore, but to look forward eagerly for the coming of the one who is the desire of the nations, hoping that on the strength of his good life, he will be crowned among the saints because of the blood of Christ. We are called to live a good life, but that's not how we get to God. We get to God because God first loved us. But because of that love, we are called to live the good life. And that good life starts with love. Love of God, love of each other. Let us not be liars. Let us come to God daily on our knees because we will fail to love God and our neighbors perfectly. Even our best good work, I'm afraid if we look deeply into the recesses of our heart, we'll find bad motivations. Mixed with the good, I believe. But even our best work is falls short, doesn't it? So we go to our knees and we confess our sins. We come to the table and we receive the body and blood of Christ. We receive God's grace. We receive the absolution. So let us come to God daily on our knees, begging forgiveness for our hatred. For if we're not loving, we're loving ourselves, and that means we're hating others. Let us pursue this love with practice, because that's how we acquire virtue. I have many friends in the Baptist world, and that world seems to be really concerned with not doing something out of a bad motivation. And so, a friend of mine said, well, you know, I don't want him or her you know, young person, You know, I work with young people all the time, I don't want them to do it out of a bad heart. And I was like, oh, I do. I want them to do the right thing out of a bad heart if that's the best they can do. I want them to do it out of a good heart, but if they don't ever do it, they're never gonna learn to do it. We have to make it habitual. We have to love. I'm done with an event with young people, and I'm, all I'm thinking of is going home, sitting back with a beer and relaxing. I'm just tired. It's been a long day. And this kid comes up and he says, hey, Father, can you, can you take me home? I'm like, oh. <laughs> you mean the opposite direction of where my home is? You mean 40 minutes out of my way, 20 minutes there, 20 minutes back? And in my heart, I say, heck no, I don't want to do that. Bad heart. My mouth says, of course I will. And as I'm going, I should be praying not that this kid will see the love of God in my life. He might, by God's grace. But I don't have the love for him that I should have had in my heart. But what I should be praying is that God will change my heart. So the next time I'm asked, I'll say, absolutely, from here. I'll share one more little story as we're out of time. When I was young, 17, summer after my junior year, maybe something like that, a friend of mine from childhood came, and I just thought, this guy's so weird, such a goofball. And my mom says, oh, he's coming. Isn't this going to be great? You know how moms do that, and you're like, oh, yeah, it's going to be great. How long is he gonna stay? Oh, I don't know, most of the summer maybe. (laughs) I'm like, no, no. My friends will think I'm so weird to have this weird friend with me everywhere. He stayed about four weeks, wasn't even all the summer. And everywhere I went, he was with me and I was embarrassed, chagrined, and trying not to be overly unkind to him, but also trying to be hip and cool with my friends, right? And I looked back on that with shame, you know, in my adult life years later, thinking, "You treated him so poorly, Foose. You didn't. You didn't really love him. You just put up with him." And ten years later, I, I didn't even hear from this guy forever. Ten years later, eight to ten years later, I remember being told, "Oh, he's come to faith." He's come to faith in Jesus, and he is at church every week. He loves God. In fact, I think he served as a pastor at a Protestant church. And then someone told me, I think it was my mother, said, yes. And he credits spending that summer with you seeing the love of God. And I was so amazed, so embarrassed, I had very little love for him, and God worked anyway. So let us come to God on our knees, begging forgiveness for our lack of love. Let us pursue this love with practice and with patience, for we can acquire virtue by practice. So that as we grow, eventually we don't just love because it's the right thing, but we self-sacrifice because we desire to do it, because it's become a habit to love those around us. May it be so for us. Amen.